Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John's Gospel. John's Gospel, chapter 16, which we're going to look at, and I've printed chapter 16, verse 4, but we're going to back up to 1526. So uh, this is always a good reason to bring your Bible every day. I may change my mind from Monday to Sunday um, when I give Kathy our text. John chapter 6, verse 15, if you are new to Christianity, you can catch up. Uh, We printed that for you on page 10 of your worship guide. You can catch up in 4 where we pick up, but I'm going to start with chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when... Their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, your sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You can have a seat. Let me pray and ask God's blessing on his word preached. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word, Lord Jesus, we want to hear your voice. And we want your voice to break into the darkness of our hearts. And so we beg you for your spirit to work amongst us afresh and new this morning. And so we pray this in your name, the exalted Christ. Amen. Well, to give you some context, again, John here, this is often called the farewell discourse of Jesus. It's the night before his death. He's in an upper room where he's saving his parting words for his disciples. And these men who are gathered with him have literally given up everything to follow Jesus. They've left careers and homes family, lifestyles, relative safety to follow Jesus. And so he is preparing them for the time when he will leave them. And Jesus says, 
in this passage to his disciples that there is an advantage to him going away, which had to be rather alarming to his followers. And the advantage he makes clear is this. It's better for them because he's going to leave them with the Holy Spirit as his parting gift. Well, let's be honest. There, if there is an advantage to having the Holy Spirit rather than Jesus, there does seem to be a lot of confusion about who the Holy Spirit and what he does. I would guess that for most of us, if you've been around the church for a while, you know the Holy Spirit by name, but there seems to be a lot of confusion around him. And if you're not a Christian and your exposure to the Holy Spirit is from TV or YouTube, um, then I would ask you to grant the same thing that teachers are fond of saying. Um, every elementary school teacher says this at the beginning of the year, I won't believe everything they say about you from home if you won't believe everything they say about me from school. Well, if we could grant that each other that kind of amnesty from what you see on TV about the chaos of the Holy Spirit or on YouTube, uh, we will be in a good starting place. Because you can get the impression that the work of the Holy Spirit is like mass chaos. People falling out on the floor, laughing uncontrollably, speaking gibberish in tongues. Lately, the Bethel movement has been dropping glitter from the ceiling as a manifestation of the Holy Spirit's presence in their worship services. And you may think, if that's the advantage, then I will pass on to something a little more sane. But amongst us, that pendulum can swing a little too dramatically. And we don't live with anticipation of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit amongst us. And so don't let confusion lead to dismissal. Don't let manufactured experience rob you of the true experience of the Holy Spirit and his power. This was the presence of the Spirit who was present at creation, who hovered over the darkness and made it spring to life. This is the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. There should be a sense of expectation of the Spirit and His power in our presence, in our lives. Want more of that, not less. Don't let the pendulum swing from confusion to dismissal. John 14 through 16 is one of the key parts of the Bible to understand the work of the Holy Spirit. But to clear away some of this confusion, we have to set this teaching in its broader context. And to state the obvious, Jesus is speaking. And this is key as we'll see, because we can't ever divorce the one who gives the Holy Spirit from the work of the Holy Spirit. We can't divorce Jesus from the Spirit's work. When we do, we end up with just a mess. You can't divorce Jesus from the work of the Father. You can't divorce the Spirit from the work of Jesus, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. One God who eternally exists in three persons all work together, not separate from each other. They work in cooperation with each other. They worked in cooperation with each other in the first work of creation, and they continue that work in his second great work of redemption. 
Secondly, the Holy Spirit is a person. You can't divorce him from Jesus, but he's not a force either. He is a he. Jesus refers to him a number of times in this passage in the, in the third person singular. He, him, not it. He's not a force. He's a person. He is fully God. He is all-present, all-powerful, all-knowing, good, gracious, righteous, holy. All that's true about God is true about God, the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus has gathered his disciples into the upper room of the city. It's Thursday night, and Friday he'll be tried, crucified, and die on the cross. And this is his farewell discourse. And he is reminding them, again, important part of the context, you're going to carry on my mission, and the world hated me. They're going to kill me. They will hate you too and kill you. It's an inevitability. They're going to kick you out of the synagogue. And, and when they kill you, they think they'll be doing service to God. They're a confused bunch of people. And Adam and Stephen, the weeks previously, did such a great job of emphasizing that Jesus is telling his disciples in this farewell discourse, I've carried on the mission of God, a work of redemption and salvation in this world, and you're going to carry it on as my disciples. The mission doesn't end with me. It comes to its climax. You've got a role to play and you'll carry it out. I'm going, God is going to continue his mission now through his disciples. And back in chapter 15, he said to them, you didn't choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And then just a few verses later where we picked up in verse 27, you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. They are going to continue his mission in this world by bearing witness to Jesus so that more and more and more people come into the kingdom of God and experience his redemptive power coming out of the brokenness of our lives into the expanse of love of God's kingdom where he makes people new. And they're going to carry this out. Look, if I was drawing up a succession plan, this isn't the group of guys that I would do it with. I would choose to carry, if I were to choose to carry out the 6,000-year-old mission of God, this is a group of guys, many from blue-collar families. They're not great warriors or speakers. By the end of the night, every single one of them will have abandoned Jesus. But the mission of God is advancing in the darkness of the sin-cursed world through a ragtag bunch of misfits. And no one can stop it because Jesus is going to give them another helper. Another helper, he says in John 14. Who's the first one? Jesus, the one who delivered men and women from the darkness of demons, the one who healed those who were born blind, the ones who raised Lazarus from the dead. He's the first helper. And then Jesus is going to give them another helper. And in this extended discourse, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit who's going to help them carry on his mission as what is translated in our version, in the English Standard Version, in our version, our translation is translated as the helper. Now, if you come from other traditions, you might have heard him translated as the comforter or 
the advocate. The Greek word is very difficult to translate into one English word. All of these sort of convey an idea of what is being translated. The Greek word is paraclete. And in the ancient world, a paraclete would be found in a legal setting. This is legal language. He would be one who would make the case with the evidence at hand, bring the truth into the light and convince others that this is true, that the evidence is true and therefore believable. And remember, the, again, the broader context here is Jesus saying that he's going away, so he's going to give another helper, another paraclete, another advocate, another counselor who's going to take all of the evidence into the sin-cursed world and convince people that Jesus is enough. Jesus' work was to bring light into the darkness, to help the blind to see, to bring evidence to the world and his disciples that Jesus himself was the greatest solution to all of mankind's problems. And so he's going to give us another one, just like him. He's going to make the case. And so as such, the Holy Spirit functions like a spotlight. And a spotlight, and this is going to be where we go from here, a spotlight does two things when it shines into the darkness. Pierces the darkness to do two things. One, uncover what is dangerous but hidden. And two, shine his light to highlight what is good. These are the two points. This is the two main works of God the Holy Spirit to pierce the darkness, to function like a spotlight, to uncover what is dangerous but hidden. So imagine a police car with a spotlight crawling into a back alley where dangerous and dark things are being done. He flips on his spotlight and pierces the darkness. He does so to bring the darkness into view so that something could be done with it. The bandit lurking in the shadows or the armed enemy crouching to bring down the vulnerable and unsuspecting victim. Verse 8. And when the helper comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they don't believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Here's the thing about us. I find it so true to be true about me. We just don't see the darkness in our lives very well. It's easy to see the darkness in other people's lives, but it's so hard to see the darkness in our own lives, and that darkness is destroying us. We're blind to the darkness of our own souls, and, and we try to scapegoat it. When we begin to see it, we try to scapegoat it by blaming it on others, by blaming on parents or our circumstances or spouses or employees or neighbors. But the darkness is in them too. We're just so much better at seeing it in them than in ourselves. And so the Spirit's role as paraclete, the Spirit's role as spotlight is to shine His light to bring about an awareness of our own sin and brokenness by showing us the evidence. 
And this is what he says, sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, those are kind of churchy language. Um, you may not be as familiar with the Bible, and we're glad that you're here, so let me define terms a little bit. And then illustrate, righteousness is a measuring up to a standard. Sin is when you break that standard. Judgment is what results. So students, when you get 100% on a test, you've measured up to the standards of the teacher. You've, if you get 100%, you're righteous according to the standard. If you miss a few, you've sinned, and the teacher takes them off. And then the teacher gives you a grade, judgment. Kind of do this with a number of things. Right? This is just the way the world works. Righteousness, there's a standard. Sin, you've broken the standard. Judgment, what results? So if you have a perfect credit score in 850, you've measured up against the standard. You're perfect. If you miss a couple payments, you've sinned. And then the bank executes judgment, and they won't give you the next loan. This is the way social media works. The, there's the standard. Who knows what it is? There's just one there. And somehow we always find ourselves sinning against it, and then shame is heaped on to us in the comments section. This is just the way sin, this is the way the world works. But one of the things that the Holy Spirit is going to do is to shine the light on Jesus so that we only are able to measure ourselves against him and his perfection. Because Jesus is the great curve breaker. He's the Son of God in the flesh. He only and ever lived in perfect obedience to his Father's commands. He was overflowing in love for neighbor, full of mercy to the broken. Pick your standard. Jesus has met it perfectly. And sin, because they don't believe in me. We've rejected the author of life and chosen our own path. Jesus loved his Father, fully devoted to him, kept his word in all things. Righteousness, and here he means lack of righteousness. Because I go to the Father, and Jesus' life on earth ends with a reward for his obedience. God rewarded him, gave him a name above all names, seated him on his throne, raised him from the dead, gave him all the kingdom's of the world all things belong to Christ all things have been given to him judgment because the ruler of this world has already been judged God the judge of the earth has dealt Satan the final blow at the cross of Jesus Christ and now you see in the judgment of God being poured out on sin and darkness at the cross you see where all evil ends up with a final day where God will defeat darkness in judgment. And the Spirit's job is to convict us because we're prone to not see ourselves in light of these realities. We lower the bar. We're constantly lowering the bar so we can meet them ourselves. Pick your standard We've lowered it because we never even meet our own standards. This is why we feel so much shame in our lives, because we don't even meet our own standards. And we live in darkness because we prefer the darkness, and so the work of the Spirit is first painful. You have not done enough. You don't measure up. You never can. You never will. 
You see, when the Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost, people, Peter makes a case for the wickedness of the people. They, the people of Jerusalem killed Jesus, the author of life. He acts sort of as this witness. This is what you've done. You're going to be held accountable to it. And the response when the Spirit is poured out is the people were cut to the heart and they cried out, what must we do to be saved? This is how you know the Spirit is working in your life. Throughout the history of revival, these great, massive, Spirit-filled times of the church growing and thriving, an amazing time of new people coming to faith in Jesus and in masses and experiencing joy and a new movement of fresh spiritual activity where sleepy churches were awakened by the Spirit. True revival, not the kind where you set up a tent in the parking lot and mark off a date on the calendar. These kind of revivals always come upon the church in unexpected ways, but they always start with one thing. The dissatisfaction of God's people with who they are and where they are and their obedience to Him. It always begins with a cut to the heart of repentance. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who saw amazing revival during World War the predecessor to World War II and during World War II where the city of London was being bombed would at times have to raise his voice because people were weeping in the pews over their sin. Charles Spurgeon had the same experience and he saw thousands in his church. Even in times of personal renewal in your own life, it'll always start with a deep sense of dissatisfaction. You will be unhappy with the status quo before God. You'll begin to cry out, Lord, change me. Lord, have mercy on me. You'll hate the sin that you once loved when the Spirit is at work. And look, we all love people who are blind to their need for Jesus. They're in all of our lives. Family members, children, neighbors. And you may be thinking, how do I get through to them? It's so hard to get through to them. Your husband just tolerates your faith in Christ, but he doesn't see his own need for Jesus. And it's here that we need to be reminded that the Spirit is like the wind. He blows where he wishes but it's also his work is often hidden. He is blowing in people's lives right now. You don't know where he's come from, you're going, and where he is blowing, you need to remember, we need to remember that they are experiencing such a deep and hidden pain because the Spirit is casting his spotlight on the darkness. And not the pain of living in a fallen world, the deep convicting pain of the Holy Spirit more cutting pain that can only be relieved by Jesus. And he's moving. Just don't know where he's come from or where he's going. And it's here that we have to ask this next question. How can we know that the feeling of guilt and shame that we're experiencing is from the Spirit and not from the devil? 
because the devil is the accuser. That's what Satan means. He accuses God's people. He loves to destroy people by heaping up all that we've done wrong. And there's so much to work with in my own life for him to heap up all that I've done wrong, to leave us accused. His greatest weapon is shame. Here's the key difference, and it leads us to the point two. Satan leaves us in the dark and despair over our sin. He highlights the darkness, and we are left cowering under the shadows of condemnation. But the Holy Spirit leads us to Jesus because that's the second work of the Spirit, a spotlight. Again, consider, we've told you before, I sort of tipped my hat to this, that we need to remember that Jesus is speaking and that the one who is speaking is the light and the life of men, that Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness and the darkness is not overcome him, will not overcome it. He is the one who entered the dark world to bear the judgment for sin so that we could be embraced by the love of the Father. And so when the Spirit shines the light on the darkness and convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, His light shines into the darkness to lead us to Jesus for immediate soul-satisfying relief. That's that second function of the Spirit of Spotlight is to highlight the main actor on the stage. There's a lot going on on the stage. A bunch of people, if you've seen a play, a bunch of people running around. You don't want the light to shine on the stage hand who's moving the furniture around. Because if the light shines there, then your focus goes there. The light shines where your focus is supposed to be. It's sort of a way of directing our attention so that we can follow the plot of the play. And so the spotlight of the Holy Spirit now shines on Jesus. His goal is to engage us because the drama of redemption has found its climax in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you don't follow the spotlight, you'll get lost. Notice how closely tied the Spirit's work is to the delivery of the content of truth. Each time Jesus calls him the paraclete in this upper room discourse three times, each time he refers to him as the Spirit of truth. His goal is to engage us, all that we are, mind and emotions, head and heart, to reveal so that we experience Jesus. This is, this is, by the way, what is so radically different about Christianity amongst world religions. Other world religions are delivering plenty of content. Jesus says, I'm going to take up residence in you so that I will be in you, so that you will experience my love, so that you will experience my grace, so that you may be made from the inside out into a new person. His goal is to engage us. The Spirit shines His light. And as a result, verse 12, the first thing when He shines His light on Jesus is that Jesus' word will continue. Verse 12. 
I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Drop this into its original context. The men who are hearing this in the upper room are the same men from whom we will receive the whole of the New Testament, apart from the Apostle Paul, who has his own experience with the resurrected Jesus later in life. And the Spirit does the same work. These men didn't write down their own ideas. They continued the teaching of Jesus. Peter, who was present here when Jesus promised this work of the Spirit, says in 2 Peter 1, no prophecy, speaking here of the New Testament particularly, was ever produced by the will of men. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And Peter has this amazing thing to say about the Bible. Peter, who was with Jesus when he was changed on a mountainside, and three disciples saw Jesus' glory. They saw Moses and Elijah, and they were so freaked out that they're like, should we make tents for these guys? What's going on here? And they heard an audible voice from God saying, this is my beloved son. And this is what Peter says. In the Bible, we have a more sure word than I heard that day. Why? Because the Spirit has been given to these men to leave for us the words of Jesus in the New Testament. Secondly, the Spirit will then unpack the gospel that's laid down in these pages slowly. I have many more things to say to you. And what he means by that specifically to these men is the giving of the New Testament scriptures. But notice the pattern that Jesus works here. I'm going to I'm going to work slowly, just at the pace that you can bear. I'm not going to tell you everything at once, because you can't. I'm just going to unpack this. Notice also that there is so much life-changing power in the gospel that it is not adequate for Jesus just to say, this is what I'm going to do, I'm going to die, be raised, go to heaven, end of story. Come back for you one day. There's so much life-changing power in the gospel that it literally takes four different gospels to unpack all that Jesus said and did in his lifetime and then the whole rest of the New Testament to begin to unpack the layers. And Jesus is like, that's how much power there is there. That's how much there is. And, And notice that he gives this into us in a process over time. I have many more things. You can't bear them now. We have to be be patient with ourselves in our walk with Jesus. And some of you older saints have experienced this. Even if you've been with Jesus 
been walking with him even just a, a decade or a couple years, there'll be things that you think, I, I just never, I never understood that. I, I'm learning that for the first time. Right, because the Spirit who comes from the Jesus who knows you, knows you as well. And he's casting the light on a particular passage at just the right time because God works slowly over processes. None of us have arrived and none of us will ever arrive. Whether you're 95 years old, been with Christ for 60 years, or you're 18 years old and been with Christ for six months, there's always going to be these times when at just the right time, you're going to discover a new layer of the gospel. It's going to change your life, and it's going to be fresh, and you're going to feel like, you're going to go through this thing where you're going to be like, why have I never seen that before? Because the Spirit has just cast light on it in your own heart. Be patient. Thirdly, as he shines his light on Jesus, the end result is that he makes much of Jesus. The Spirit has been times been called the shy member of the Trinity. He's not really shy. It's just that his mission is not to make much of himself, but to make much of Jesus. He will glorify me, for he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. Verse 14. So this is the litmus test of the Spirit's work. The Spirit doesn't make much of himself. It is remarkable, I think, that much of the Christian movements that are known for the manifestations of the Holy Spirit have so little Bible content and so little gospel depth that you have to ask, you have to ask, is this really a move of the Spirit? The Spirit brings light to God's Word and Jesus grows in our hearts. It is Jesus who has given the parting gift of the spirit of truth who function as the one who brings to our hearts and minds the full evidence of God's word to impact all that we are so that if this is what Jesus is giving, then this word in his gospel is going to meet our deepest needs. This is Jesus saying, I want, I want you to have so much of me then I'm going to give you my spirit. You see what he's promised? He's promised this in his word. He's promised in John's gospel to the woman at the well, you'll never be thirsty again. He promised in John 6 that if you eat of me, you'll never be hungry again. And the gospel is able to satisfy the deepest cravings of our hearts so that we overflow with peace and love and joy. Because the spirit of truth is testifying that Jesus is enough. And so for the follower of Jesus, you're just constantly opening your Bible in new and fresh ways. In new and fresh ways, it comes alive. It surprises you. That's Jesus working by his Holy Spirit. And the end result is always when the Spirit's working. Oh, Jesus, how you love me despite my sin. We, we need to learn the discipline of being dissatisfied with the status quo so that we learn to ask for more of the Spirit's work. 
Because part of the Spirit's work is to feel our own weakness and helplessness, so we turn to Jesus and his sufficiency. In the early 20th century, racial tensions were extremely high in East Africa. Nationalism was on the rise, and the church was in decline. And then revival broke out. And racial tensions within the church just completely were eliminated. A Sri Lankan writer explains what happened. In 1935, Blasio Kogosi, a school teacher in Rwanda, this is always happens, revival always starts with the most unlikely people. A school teacher in Rwanda, Central Africa, was deeply discouraged by the lack of life in the church and the powerlessness of his own experience, dissatisfaction, and what more. So he followed the example of the first Christians and he closed himself off for a week of prayer and fasting in his little cottage. He emerged a changed man. This is what happened. He confessed his sins to those he wronged, including his wife and children. He proclaimed the gospel in the school where he taught and revival broke out there, resulting in students and teachers being saved. They were called the Abaka, meaning people on fire. Shortly after that, Blasio was invited to Uganda goes from Rwanda, Uganda, to share with the Anglican church there what had happened. And what he did is he called on the leaders to repentance, and the fire of the Spirit descended again on the place with similar results in Rwanda. Several days later, Blasio died of fever. His ministry only lasted a few weeks. But the revival fire sparked through his ministry, swept through East Africa, and continue to today. You know East Africa is a hotbed for violence and the rise of Islam. And the church is growing with fire. Hundreds of thousands of lives have been transformed over the decades through this mighty East African revival, and it all began with a discouraged Christian setting himself apart to seek the fullness of God's Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we want more. We want a fresh experience of the Holy Spirit in our own lives. We want to be set on fire. We want revival. We want refreshment. We want you to awaken us. We want you to convict us, cut our hearts. We want a more and deeper and more alive experience of Jesus. And so we pray for the helper, for the advocate, for the counselor, for the paraclete to bring fresh evidence of our need and Jesus' sufficiency. 
Lord, we are begging you, God, move through our city, our own church, our own lives in this way. Amen.